begins with giving us to do a quick review. So we're in chapter 18 of the Gospel of John. We've been slowly making our way through the Gospel of John. We're in 18, so we just spent the last four chapters in what's called the Upper Room Discourse. This is Jesus' last meal, hang out with the disciples. He spends chapter 17 praying for them. And then they leave this gathering and dive into a pretty, I don't know, intense, incredible, overwhelming experience of Jesus' arrest and his interrogation. And we see Peter denying. I'm kind of my friend a little bit in terms of, I think most of us are familiar with fight or flight responses, or maybe fight, flight, or freeze. Pretty good survey. So, if you were to identify yourself, are you like typically a fight person or a flight person? Now, this is super vulnerable. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. So, who would identify more as like a fight person? Okay, good to know. Take a picture. There you go. Uh, what about flight? Who's more of a flight person? Oh, pretty even. Okay, so what we're going to see is we're going to see a few pictures of fighting and flighting, and then Jesus is going to ask this question in the middle, in verse 11, he's going to say this. Pretty pertinent question. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? So in the midst of all the ways we can respond in the midst of daily life, Jesus says to Peter, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And he proposes a different way of responding by embracing the invitation of the Father. Now, I'm going to learning to uh, do a reading for me. So she's going to read this text uh, for us. So I invite you just to kind of listen. If you want to close your eyes, it's the time to sort of just listen to the words of this story. And then I'll kind of go through it again. Uh, so you don't need to worry about retaining everything. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those who gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers, with its commander and the Jewish officials, arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father of the Malchus, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back to the girl, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. 
He replied, I have not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around the fire. They had made to keep them warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound to Caiaphas, to the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warning himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you again in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it, and at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Thank you. So, we see this picture, this story. Uh, we see in verse 1, there's a little bit of geography, right? So, like that, the question is math, I think it'll orient us a little bit. So, what we see is, John tells us that they're probably somewhere in the temple walls, historians like that, and they cross over the Kidron Valley, so that's on the eastern side of Jerusalem, right? And then they go to the Mount of Olives and the Garden of Gethsemane, right? We know that from the other Gospels. Now, the thing that's interesting is Judas has left in chapter 13. So at the beginning of this little last supper they have, Judas leaves, and yet he knows where Jesus is going. It's pretty interesting. A lot of historians think that what happens is Jesus has gone out to this Passover three different times. He's on an 84-mile journey from Galilee down to Jerusalem, and there's some thought that maybe he had a pattern. Right? He'd do this little last supper thing, and then after they go pray, uh, in response, preparing their hearts for the Passover. And so Judas knows where they're going, even though he wasn't there when they leave. The text also says that their, uh, Judas goes with a guard, like a battalion of soldiers. If you look at the northern part, do you see that Antonia fortress right there? So one of the things that happened during Passover is, uh, Josephus says, he's a Jewish historian, he says that three million people end up showing up quite a party, quite a feast, quite a gathering. And so the Romans were nervous about riots and such, so they stationed 200 soldiers there. So that, just in case there's a riot, they have people to fight. So what happens is, Judas leaves at about chapter 13, he goes to the Pharisees, says, hey, I know where Jesus is. They then go to the temple guard. The temple guard goes to the high priest. The high priest says, hey, can I get a couple soldiers to come with us as we go to arrest them? So then what you see, and John paints this picture, he says this, there's this group, and they're carrying torches, and lanterns, and weapons. So, it's dark. So they're in an olive grove, these old olive trees. Jesus is praying, some of the disciples are sleeping, and now you start to maybe hear the Roman soldiers walking out, right? The, the sword is hitting their leg pad. Right? They see the reflections of the torches in this dark light. And I just, I want you to imagine for a second that you are in this garden. What do you do? It's quiet, and then you start to hear the footsteps. You start to hear and maybe see the reflections 
what Jesus does. It's pretty interesting. He actually doesn't hide. He doesn't retreat. He actually goes straight up to him. He's like, hey, what do you guys want? Oh, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And then he says this, I am he. Now, when he goes, you think, oh, I am he. That's what I would say too. Right? But in Greek, this is ego on me. Now, Jesus has said this seven other times in the Gospel of John. And it echoes back to a particular moment in the Old Testament. When God introduces himself to Moses at a burning bush, and he says to Moses, I am who I am. I am God. So every time now that Jesus says that in the Gospel of John, he's trying to click into our brains, Jesus is reinforcing, hey, I'm not just some average rabbi on the street. I am God. And what we've seen up to this point in John is there's seven different times where he has said an I am statement. He said this, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. The way, the truth, and the life. The true vine. And now he says in this final moment, Right? I am. And what happens? Did you, did you hear that? What happens? They fall on the ground. If you echo back to the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, what happens when people enter the presence of God or that which is holy, maybe an angel? What do they do? They fall on their faces. For a Jewish writer like John, this is like a mic drop moment. Right? It's like, he says, I am. They fall on their faces. It's like, Boom. Jesus is God. Now they sort of stand up again, they dust themselves off, right? He says, hey, I'm looking for Jesus of Nazareth, right? He says this. It's pretty incredible, actually, when I think about it. Jesus says this. If you are looking for me, let these men Right, so at this moment, when he is about to be arrested, his personal safety has at most risk. Who is he thinking about? The disciples. If you go back to chapter 10, he says that he is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Right, that's now happening. In the last chapter, right, he spends this whole chapter praying. And what does he pray about? God, protect these disciples as I leave them. I know I'm going to die, but I'm more concerned about their well-being being and now he says it again. Be with them. Peter, though, he doesn't have quite this response. He grabs his sword, and maybe like you would, maybe like I would, he goes to instinctive, protective fight mode. Right? Someone he loves is about to get arrested, so what is he going to do? He goes charging in. And it's understandable, actually. If you sort of enter into the emotion of the moment, you get it. And yet, in the midst of it, he's totally missing what God is trying to do. Right? God is inviting Jesus. The Father is inviting Jesus actually to lay down his life so that he can bring life to the world, so that he can defeat sin in the world, so that he can initiate this rescue plan on earth to redeem all things. And then Peter grabs his sword and fights. He misses the invitation of God in that moment, even though he does something I think many of us might do. Jesus, in response, he says, put away your sword. You're missing it. And then this key line, he says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? 
Maybe to shift the language. Hey, I want to embrace the invitation of God. I don't want to sidestep it. I want to embrace it. And the thing is, I think sometimes we daydream about this moment. Like, we just, just, I don't know, as a little boy, I used to do this. Like, daydream of, like, Game 7, the World Series. I'm up, the bases are loaded, we're down by three, and I imagine myself hitting the home run, right, to win the game. We do this all the time. I think we do this spiritually, too. Like, we imagine ourselves in that moment where, like, I would have been faithful. And yet, Jesus' obedience in Gethsemane is formed by his obedience in Galilee. Right? It's the daily faithfulness that leads him to this moment, forms him into the kind of person that in this moment he can say, I will embrace the invitation of God no matter what. But it's not like he just was like on the ground, boom, I can do it. He's formed, he's trained, he has lived his life in faithful obedience to the Father. So in this moment, he's ready. Drinks the cup. I want you to imagine yourself again. Now you're in this garden. These soldiers have bound God with ropes. They're walking away. What do you feel? What do you do? It's dark out, right? The, the torches, the lanterns are moving away from you. The sound of the soldiers is in the distance. What do you feel? If you are a witness of something I have said wrong, 
submitting to this arrest. Right? He doesn't call down legions of angels, which he could, he is God. Instead, he serves what the path of the Father is and he embraces him. Now, as this is happening, right, John then shoots us back out into the courtyard. Now, Peter's there, and this guy by the fire, he says, Hey, you get that guy, that Jesus guy, he's like, no. And then there's this really interesting little narrative point where there's like the, the, what is it, the cousin or relative of the guy that Peter cut the ear of. That guy now is at the fire, and he's like challenging him. He's like, Hey, I know you're him. He's like, No, no, no. So three times Peter denies it, and then there's this sort of really odd anecdote of Peter in the history of like this rooster crowing, and you're like, that's a really weird footnote. Unless you know the story. In chapter 13, at the very beginning of his dinner, in verse 37, Jesus says, or Peter says this, he's like, I will lay down my life for you. I will die for you, Jesus. I'm here. And the next verse, verse 38. Jesus says this, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. So on one level, Peter, in this sort of abstract sense, is willing to be back. But when the moment of opportunity comes, he runs. In the garden, he fights. By the fire, Now, I want to lean into, then, how does this story translate into everyday life? Obviously, this has historical significance in its time. How does this relate to our life today? How does this inform how we follow Jesus today? Now, at the beginning, I sort of framed this whole message in terms of verse 11. Right? Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? If we were to frame that in more uh, as a statement, Versus a question, it would be this, right? I want to embrace the invitation of God. <clears throat> and I think the question is for us, how do we embrace the invitation of God? In the midst of our daily lives. In the midst of life when it is not always easy. In the midst of the ups and downs of trying to follow Jesus. As I was thinking about this particular, three particular windows into this conversation came to mind. The first is this. How do we embrace the invitation of God? Difficult times. Right? Because that's really what this is about, right? This is someone being arrested unfairly. This is someone having the opportunity to talk about Jesus and they're like, oh my gosh, this is freaky. I could be interrogated too. And what we see in difficult times is we can have lots of different responses. Maybe you do. I think it's really easy when life gets hard to fight. When you get mad. People, you get mad at God, you get mad at events, you're like, why does this have to happen? And we push back and we fight. It's also really easy during really difficult times to run, to retreat, and to hide. Right? To binge on Ben and Jerry's answer of Netflix, right? To just run away. But Jesus presents a model for us of what does it look like to embrace the invitation of God in the midst of difficult times. Now, one of the advantages Jesus has, at least in this moment, is he has foreknowledge. Like, he knows what's going to happen, but we often don't. 
So what do we do in that place, right? Something hard happens. How do we respond? How do we not just fight and get mad? How do we not just run and hide? How do we sort of embrace the invitation of God? I was trying to think of like, do they practically? What does that mean? Because most of us, we don't know it's coming, so we're sort of blindsided. I was going to say, I think there's two very practical things to do, whether it's in an afternoon, and it's a hard afternoon and you're trying to process, or whether it's a hard season, a year, or a decade. What do you do? I think the first thing that I would suggest for us on a very practical level is identify what are you actually feeling in that moment? My experience is if we don't identify what's actually going on inside of us, it will leak out. Right? So Peter, in that moment, he feels powerless, so what does he do? He runs with his sword. Identifying what's really going on in us. Because if we don't do that, I think it's actually really hard to discern the invitation of God. Because we're so bottled up and so unaware of what we're actually feeling and thinking Step two, I would say, is that in the midst of that, recognizing in conversation with God what's actually going on within us, then say, what are you? Of the parent who's standing before that mountain of laundry. 
I was thinking of the parent who's up four times in the middle of the night, and each time you hear your child cry, you're just like, wow, okay, you know? I'm thinking of the, the aging adult who's now starting to experience a lot of physical discomfort. I'm thinking of the person who's going to work and just hates the boss, or maybe the coworker. I'm thinking of the person who enters their house and it's just a disaster, this mess, and they have to face, what do I do in all of these moments? These very ordinary, simple moments. Where you can run from it, you can procrastinate on doing the dishes or dealing with the pile of laundry. You can get mad at them and be like, I'm so grumpy and mad and yelling at kids. There's all kinds of ways to process this. But what does it look like to embrace the invitation of God in the midst of ordinary? Because I think the truth is, again, our faithfulness is formed in Galilee, not in Gethsemane. It's actually in the daily places where we get to choose. All right, I am going to be present to God in the midst of human language. Say, God, what is your invitation for me in this Honestly, I think it's these daily spaces that are not like overly like, you're not going to write a book at them because people will be like, that's boring. But this is, I think, the point where most formation happens. This is a training. This is where we become the kind of people when we get to those hard moments or when those opportunities arise, when we can respond in faithfulness because we've learned the day in and the day out how our heart responds to obstacles. I see you start to realize, yeah, I'm the kind of person when the laundry gets big, when I run into that coworker, I'm going to run. Alright, that's my that's my neighbor. I need to work on choosing it. Or I'm the kind of person who's gonna fight, and I need to figure out how to like not just sort of leak my anger out on other people in the midst of life circumstances that I really don't like. And Jesus becomes the kind of person who can say, I will accept your invitation no matter what in this enemy, because he's faithful to the Father's speaking voice throughout his whole life. Shrinks numerically, stays the same numerically, or grows. 
deeper is always connected to deeper levels of letting go and surrender. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. One of the things I'm going to invite you to do as we enter worship is this. There's these two crosses up here. And as you enter, you should have been given a piece of paper. If you didn't, I have a papers and uh, pens in the back. This is my invitation to you as we enter worship. Write something on that piece of paper that gets in your letter and embrace the invitation process. I don't know what it is for you. You know, what is that thing that gets in your way that limits your ability to embrace the invitation Maybe it's a hard time. Maybe there's a way in which you're sidestepping opportunities. Maybe it's something in daily life. What is the thing? Maybe it's neutral. Maybe it's a good thing that gets in the way of the best. Maybe it's a sin in your life, a character defect, that consistently pulls you away from the presence of the Father. This is a way for us in worship. We're going to sing a song called I Surrender. I just invite you just to prayerfully consider what is it that you need to leave at the base of the cross. Now this isn't, you know, there's nothing magical here. This is simply a way of us getting up out of our seats and responding to the invitation of God in a very practical way to say, alright, I'm going to put that in one of these little baskets at the cross. It's a way of saying to all the to Jesus, I give it to you. I want to embrace your invitation in my life today. I thank you for your goodness. Spirit, we just pray in this moment that you would you would come. God, I just sense that right in this moment there is a uh, there's a, there's something happening in the room where people want to sort of dodge the question. Like our brains want to go to chores for later, our brains want to go to the grocery list, our brains Brains want to go to next week and kids going to school, and I think there's an invitation of the Spirit to say, Be present now. I am here. Just to invite you, just to think about what gets in the way of you embracing the invitation of God. As I was praying this week, I just felt this very practical word. I think that's for some of you. Uh, it's an actual phrase. I feel like God is saying to a couple of you in this room, this is not for you. If it's not for you, just ignore it. But if it is, I want to take it in. I think God is saying to some of us, hey, get off the sideline. I want you on the field. And so if that is you, I just invite you to take that in. God has an amazing plan he wants to unfold before you. It's part of that. You have a gentleman saying,